Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Please Send Help Soapbox podcast. I am your host, Grinny, and today I am joined by Open Sprocket. Say hi. Hello, everyone. So today we're going to be going ahead and talking about single versus multiplayer games. Which ones we prefer, how we change them, how we think they've changed over the last decade or so. And if we could make the switch between a single to multiplayer game or vice versa, what would we change and how and why? So first off, uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, Open Sprocket. You're new. Well, I may be new to most of you, but I have known Grinny for well, the better part of three years now. It's hard to think that, but I've always been into games, and I've played a variety of single and multiplayer games throughout the years. I consider myself at least somewhat knowledgeable about the subject. There you go. I, I can agree with that. Uh, and yeah, it's hard to believe it's been three years. Time flies, especially when you throw the alarm clock out the window. Or so, put it on an airplane. Exactly. And uh, let's see. So single versus multiplayer. I think I'll take this one first. Which one I prefer and why? Honestly, uh, it's going to have to be multiplayer for me. I'm not somebody that's huge into the really in-depth single-player experiences. Uh, games like Skyrim and Oblivion and Morrowind, all the Elder Scrolls games, they definitely captured my imagination and I've put hundreds of hours into each of them. And they're a lot of fun, but that's more for the fact that I'm able to tweak the game and mod it and generally just have a sandbox to play in and I do enjoy that sandbox sometimes but overall I definitely like multiplayer more for the social aspect it's my way to hang out with friends and especially nowadays with COVID-19 kind of screwing up normal human sociality uh, or at the very least putting a mask over it it's really nice to have a good couple of multiplayer games that are just a nice standby that people in your friend group play often so definitely multiplayer for me what about you sprocket well i have to agree and both disagree with you on that one i think during this stay at home time it's how shall we say multiplayer games are definitely showing their importance more more and more but the games i played as a kid like master of orion or command and conquer those stories and those universes captured my imagination probably the most and I guess as they've grown we've seen how they can incorporate those multiplayer experiences but for me it's always been about that you know what can I create with this basically universe that someone else has created I can agree with that uh, being able to change and modify and experience stuff yourself inside the confines of the lore or system that someone's made up. So you mentioned Master of Orion and Command and Conquer, uh, both of which I've played and, you know, I'm not much of a strategy fan, but what's your, what's your favorite genre if single player games are involved? Would it be strategy? I'd have to say strategy games are probably some of my most favorite of all time just because of the depth. Uh, I'm a sucker for, you know, inventive mechanics or, you know, having to solve a problem and find your way out of a tough situation. 
I can remember levels on Command and Conquer where it's like you have to play it in just a certain way, and the whole level is really just crafted like a puzzle. And for me, that was like so engrossing and engaging that like I have, you know, I have a notebook I think somewhere still that has like all the little strategies that I tried as a you know six-year-old me. <laughs> That's also that. I think that says something, though. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Like how age plays into that decision. Uh, I I remember, as far as strategy games are concerned, the Star Wars Galactic Battlegrounds game, which was basically just a port of Age of Empires into the Star Wars universe. Like the mechanics were almost a hundred percent the same. It was really just the Star Wars version of Age of Empires two, and I spent. Who knows how much time in that game just playing around and doing the little instant action scenarios that you could do because it could randomly generate maps and whatnot and that was huge for me when I was younger because I remember playing on the same old maps in some of the other games that uh, I grew up playing and the fact that you could just randomly generate maps and then have at it with the AI was really interesting, especially the scenario editor. I think that was my very first experience in modding anything, was being able to create my own custom scenarios. And you were saying you were you had a notebook from like age six playing uh, Command & Conquer. We're probably looking at, I was like age nine or something when I was huge into Galactic Battlegrounds. I remember getting it for Christmas, just kind of as an off gift, you know? That wasn't the main event, as it were, but it was certainly the main event of many hours afterward. Uh, but for my favorite genre, really, it's probably going to have to be... It's going to have to be some sort of conflict game, whether that's a first-person shooter or something like a vehicle simulator, kind of like War Thunder or World of Tanks or something like that. It's got to have some sort of fight with it, that competition. Uh, I'm not really that much of a violent person. I don't enjoy like crazy amounts of gore and whatnot, but the competition represented by some of those games is really what draws me there, being able to just play with friends and see how well we work together against overwhelming odds. Planet Side 1 and to an extent Planet Side 2 are definitely some of the hallmarks of that whole idea. Planet Side 1 Combined Arms to this day is still one of my most favorite experiences playing any game ever. No one's been able to scratch the edge, not even the sequel. So if you, you had a choice, how would you change one of those uh, top games that you've mentioned? You've talked about a couple different games. How would you change one of those games in that category? You know, that's a very uh, interesting question. Honestly, for me, at least as someone who's always been interested in strategy games, I feel like they struggle a little bit with accessibility. You think about, you know, StarCraft II as an eSport. It's very, you know, flash, flashy, showy, high APM actions per minute, you know, jumping around i'm doing seven things at the same time and oh let me just you know casually pick up all these units and do this and you know there's an extreme amount of skill and practice and really mechanical aptitude that you have to build up to be able to play at that kind of a level and i feel like strategy games have always suffered a little bit from that inaccessibility because not only do you have to learn 
how to do you know the baby steps but you also have to learn how to then not fail so badly at those baby steps that other people beat you and so you've got this multi-tiered you know i guess chain of command or process tree that you have to follow in order to feel like you're doing good at the game and for me i feel like that turns away a lot of people yeah me included uh this this is coming from someone who for years whenever he played supreme commander looking back on it now i would basically just rush to kill from the very moment we started because i didn't realize that you had to have a certain amount of uh energy generators and mass pumps and whatnot all lined up and that that's how your economy functioned because i wasn't just i just wasn't paying attention to it so i would basically just rush early game with tier one tier two units at max because i was trying to hurry up and get a kill and get some more stuff put on to the map in my faction before i had a complete economic crash and was basically stuck for the rest of the game and yeah just the fact that it was both so obvious that you should gather those resources and balance your economy but at the same time there was not really a whole lot of feedback beyond eventually running out of juice and being able to uh, not being able to make units definitely a bit of a turnoff especially when then you join a multiplayer match and somebody has an entire fleet of tier two ships within that wasn't even a five minute match we went from nothing at tier one to he blew up my entire base with advanced aircraft in less than five minutes in Supreme Commander 2. The esports mentality definitely permeates a lot of strategy games, and high APMs are not something that everyone's good at, me included. I feel like, I don't know, strategy games definitely suffer from it most visibly, but any other game that has like a high-profile esports scene or com- competitive scene, kind of, there's all these little tricks and things that you have to learn by putting in all that practice, and I feel like by it's both a good thing and a bad thing, by making it accessible, you make more people enjoy it, but you also kind of cheapen the experience of what it takes to get to that kind of level. So I guess it could be a bit of a double-edged sword. So how would you change one of those games then? If you had accessibility issues, what would you actually change to make things more accessible? Would you, you know, stratify the player base on some sort of uh, EOL? Would you basically you know make the gameplay flow and user experience and ui easier to digest how would you actually change itself from you mentioned planet side i guess this one's a okay example to use planet side 2 is a great game it's got a lot of depth to it you know it it rewards team play but the ability to get to the point where you're actually employing team play is rather difficult. You have auto-join systems that leave people orphaned in squads, and you have you have mechanics that you can only understand by playing. And those things, I don't know, they're difficult to introduce in a short time or without you know creating a 40-long-minute video explaining it in depth. And let's face it, some people don't have that attention span, and there's nothing wrong with it. But by having intelligent design, when you create something so that it's it feels like 
oh, anyone could walk up on the street and do that. You know, that's that's the hallmark of good design, I think. Where it's easy to introduce, but difficult to master. I, can, I like that uh, mentality. Easy to learn, hard to master. I think we've kind of gotten away from that style of gameplay. Not, not in the sense that games aren't necessarily easy. Like, I think anyone once they got over the hump of learning how to manipulate a character in a 3D space, right, using dual sticks, say, on a, a Xbox or PlayStation controller or even on a Switch nowadays, realizing how to work a character in a 3D space using dual stick, like, anyone could play Skyrim at that point. It's not rocket science. It tells you, hey, grab a sword. You should then hit the thing that's attacking you, and you can move using one stick and look with the other. And it, it really isn't that big of a deal once you get over the hump of realizing that's how video games in that sense work. That's a totally different story for a different podcast, learning how to actually play a game like that. But it's not deep, you know? It, at the end of the day, most of the content you'd see online for games like that are more about how do you break the game and min-max it and do all sorts of funny stuff within the confines of the game engine, like uh, the infamous glitch in Oblivion where you would take a single item and then glitch it and then multiply it because the physics engine was crap in that game and it would spaz out and start duplicating and duplicating and duplicating and suddenly where you had one skooma, you had 300. And then because of another glitch, you could drink all 300 at once and then leap through the game's world boundaries. Like, just stuff like that. Because the game isn't deep. Because there isn't enough depth and enough stuff to actually do in those games or enough difficulty that's openly obvious that people are reduced to just goofing off and having fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. Those are both very fun games. But I think especially with strategy games, there leaves something to be desired with the actual meaningful depth. As opposed to just knowing, hey, this rock beats that scissor, and this paper beats my rock. Which is what a lot of uh, more modern strategy games tend to do, from what I've seen, anyway. Yeah, ultimately it's really hard to, you know, balance something... It's very asymmetrical and entirely dependent on player skill. I think yes. one of the most innovative game mechanics that I've seen as of late is the Apex Legends ping system. You know, you middle mouse button and it, it intelligently tells you what you're looking at. But if you hold it down, you get a wheel option with so many more options. And I feel like that kind of depth could be present in other types of games and mechanics. Yes, that kind of that kind of design philosophy for sure should be replicated. Because I'm not good at Apex. You've seen this. I suck at Apex. I love Pathfinder. I suck at Apex though. And something makes it really easy to coordinate with puppies in a random drop with people just by pinging. You don't have to have voice chat and be coordinated. It's just oh, you see an enemy, click. Oh, you see a gun over there, throw up the wheel. I want that gun like those options and that ease of communication is a huge deal and so if I could change one of my top games in the category of like games about conflict and whatnot uh, jokes aside I would bring Planicide 1 back to life and defubar it because that game 
missed its potential by a long shot because Sony didn't know what it was doing and World of Warcraft came out that same year. They were, they were screwed. Everybody was patently screwed when World of Warcraft came out because it redefined the massively multiplayer game genre into what it is. It invented theme parking to a degree. You had games like EverQuest and Ultima and MUDs even, like the text-based, ASCII-based online uh, dungeon simulators and whatnot that all had a much more interactive sense to how you play them. But then World of Warcraft comes along and it rewards you for being awesome because you're awesome, because you're the player awesome. And you're able to go and see all these sites and it's scaled in a way to where you're able to, you know, really have a sense of accomplishment and growth. I, I don't think so much anymore in Modern WoW, but back then it was a huge deal beating through raids. Leroy Jenkins, the Leroy Jenkins meme came from World of Warcraft. Because some guy in a crappy quality Skype call, like 10, 15 years ago, just yelled, Leroy Jenkins, and then ran into the boss room of one of the hardest raids in old school World of Warcraft. And it spawned a meme that to this day is still in the lexicon of gaming. And Planetside was screwed at that point. For all the cool ideas that it had, for all the cool combined arm stuff that you could do with it, it was a game that was never finished, and it was a game that was never given its proper chance in an accepting market. And if I could change something, I would bring the game back to friggin' life, do it myself, and just have a ball with it. I think that's something that, I don't know, with both multiplayer and single-player games over the years, we've seen a a shift in how they are monetized especially in the like within the last 10 years you know nowadays it's extremely common to have microtransactions or mobile games where you pay to remove ads i think you know when you have a monetization system that doesn't you know reward you it doesn't feel like you're getting a finished game because Which... you're always buying the next thing yeah, that that does that does make sense. Uh, that that monetization is tied to some sort of in-game reward system. Uh, uh, an example to me of that is I, I was huge into Clash of Clans way back, um, back when that was the thing to play. I don't even know what the thing to play is anymore. You don't play TikTok like a video game, but I'm pretty sure that counts, and that ages both of us by saying, "Oh, TikTok." The thing the kids play, the fact that that's even part of this dialogue already ages us both a wee bit, but Clash of Clans felt like it was impossible to play after a certain point of progression if you didn't drop money on gems every now and then. It was really easy to get into a war with your clan fighting off other people and to get steamrolled by some guy and to then have your base come back to life a couple hours later and get steamrolled by the same guy or another guy. And if you didn't drop gems, that you either ground for free at a very slow rate or bought and got yourself a protection bubble for a couple hours, you could hardly rebuild. And that was just the way things were because there were some people that played it really efficiently and obsessively. And if you were in a war with one of those clans, you were toast unless you paid money. And or, you know, after the fact, you found out that it was some 12-year-old with access 
to his mother's credit card. Exactly. Which that was always the best. The last time I ever played Fortnite in a puppy drop, or ever actually, because uh, like I said, I like conflict games and war simulation games and things like that uh, to a certain degree. And so I call something out using the compass because for some reason, uh, Fortnite of all things kept the compass implemented, which was like, it was integral in how you played uh, PUBG, which was pretty big at the same time for a while there until they screwed it up again some more. And I called out say, oh, there's another group of guys bearing 305 on the hill. And this squeaker, this absolute child baby thing. I can't even identify the gender. It was just this squeak came through the voice. It said, we are the military. Why use compass? And it was like, oh, 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 oh no. And then the rest of the party finally chimed in after being dead silent. I, at the start of the game, I said, oh, hello there. Good luck, guys. And that must have turned them off or something, because they didn't say anything until they all chimed in with their fifth grade voices and said, Yeah, you're not a military soldier, man. And it was like, oh, oh, okay, okay. I'm officially too old to play this game without friends. <laughs> I can't publicly drop in this game without feeling like I'm trying to play tag with kindergartners. It's just not worth it. So doing that in real life would probably get uh, some strange looks i think exactly that's the other thing is that's like i'm not gonna get the the e-police called on me for playing with a bunch of random minors the hell is this how can they even why are they even playing this game that that's man we're going down so many different rabbit holes today but that actually does answer the question do you think multiplayer games are improving or stagnating over the last 10 years if i could condense it down to one thing I would say that multiplayer games have improved in development cycles and thoroughly stagnated in terms of audience retention and uh, product market fit, basically. And I say that because the huge proliferation of mobile devices and tablets and whatnot have made all sorts of games much more accessible to a much wider audience, some of which are not in the most proper demographic like most kids like most minors i don't think that uh lots of games that have high populations of underage players should have allowed those players in the first place but it's not something to where the regulation especially in the u.s has any power to stop it what trouble would you get in if you went to the store and bought doom eternal and then accidentally, quote-unquote, left your Switch on, or your PlayStation, or your Xbox, or your PC, and little Timmy walks in, and he plays a couple rounds of Doom Eternal. But there, what's, what, what's gonna happen to you? Nothing's gonna happen to you. Nobody cares. But that changes how games are developed, because people know who's gonna play them. How do we monetize this in a way that is enticing to little Timmy so whenever he plays Fortnite or Clash or whatever else on his mom or dad's iPhone, how do we get them to then beg their parents to pay for micros? And that did not exist when World of Warcraft and Planetside 1 and all these other first generation MMOs came along. 
I say first generation in the sense first generation of truly mass scale uh, post dial up MMOs. Something that again, actually had netcode. Yeah, because like Ultima and MUDs and whatnot, they're still around. They're still fun to play, but they act and play differently because of the limitations of the time. World of Warcraft and its ilk were some of the first games to graduate beyond 56k dial-up modems being the norm, you know? So, I mean, there's an obvious irony here. We both said that we played games when we were younger. Do you feel that the type of games that are able to be acquired now are better or worse than what we had 20 years ago? (laughs) 20 years ago? Oh my gosh. Uh, You know, I'll, I'll answer that with a simple statement. I have maybe a half dozen games from the last eight years that I have played in this calendar year. Maybe. Whereas the games proportionally that I put way more time and hours in all came out almost a decade ago. Once again, like Minecraft, like I played a bit of Skyrim earlier. Elite Dangerous, which we were on a huge binge for weeks on, that came out in 2014. And, uh, geez, Realm of the Mad God is massive in my whole extended family right now. Realm of the Mad God was a Flash game on Congregate and Wild Shadow Games in, like, 2011. It's all, it's, it's ten years or more old, I think, at this point. Or it's darn near that age. Nowadays, it's got a Unity port and it's distributed on Steam and whatnot, but that game has been a fixture on my Steam list or some sort of gaming cycle for almost a decade already. I couldn't even tell you a lot of the games that have released this year because I just don't care. I can't think of any that have actually held my interest long enough for me to hit wishlist on it. So, I think that's... it's interesting that you can now play Realm of the Mad God on, on mobile. I wonder if that has any uh, correlation to it. At least through Puffin. Yeah, well, that that's a thing. Through Puffin, you're able to play that and ostensibly other games through the means that you wouldn't really have. You know? And that goes back to the idea of mobile gaming. The mobilization both literally as in more movable and mobile as in the device. The mobilization of video game design has definitely changed how things are done. Because, you know, Realm in its essence, I think, is still pretty similar to the way it used to be. It's grown and changed. It's changed hands. I think it's on, like, its third owner now because it's gone up and down in terms of profitability. Uh, As any game. As any game, for sure. But, like, it's got microtransactions, and it's got its equivalent of loot crates and whatnot now, but the whole game is already focused on the random roguelike essence of trial and failure. You're constantly playing a character that at any given moment could get killed permanently, and then you lose all the stuff that's on that character permanently, unless you put it away in one of your vaults. But then you gather too much stuff, so then you have to buy more vault space. You want to have other characters as backups, you buy more character slots, blah, 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 blah. It grows into this massive snowballed thing. 
So it's monetized exactly the same way as a lot of other games. It's just done in a different coat of paint because the whole game itself is a giant loot box. And it was doing that for a long time, long before loot crates became the object of scrutiny under like the European Union and uh, other government scale entities. Yep, those good old surprise mechanics. Yeah, so, so what does that say about the core gameplay loops and mechanics of stuff that comes out nowadays? What, what was the shift? What happened? Ultimately, I think the industry itself has grown. I think in like 2018, you know, just these numbers aren't accurate, but I think they reflect the scale. In like 2018, you know, there was like 50 billion or 50 million dollars spent on your average movie year. And like the movie industry as a whole was like 50 billion dollars. You know, that's yeah. a ton of money. But also in 2018, the gaming industry was like almost $250 billion or something like that. It was a few times larger than movies. And that's not ever some, something that gets talked about, is how massive games and video games have become in our cultures. They've grown so much over the last decade that now you're starting to see people viewing it as a way of making money you know taking other people's money and acquiring it for themselves which isn't necessarily a bad thing because everyone has to eat but i think the scale on which it's done has become so much bigger than it originally was way back in the 90s and 80s and you know back when it was just the arcade on the corner and i can agree with that that it's it's more than anything it's just grown because you know, having been to those arcades and spent a lot of time in them when I was younger, because, uh, you know, my dad was as much a junkie for it as I am. I loved those old school arcade games, but they were just money grabs, too. That was the whole point of it. There was no in-depth rewarding mechanics about frickin' Pac-Man. It was the adrenaline rush of how long you can keep this little pixelated lemon-looking thing waka waka ing away at these little dots on a screen till one of the ghosts eats you. And then you drop another quarter, another two, number three, or however much each individual play cost. I swear nowadays it varies everywhere because uh, arcade boxes are so arcane and uncommon. But it was meant to get you to pay more money, right? You die. Oh no, I need to earn another life. You lose all your lives. What do you do? You're given this immediate call to action. Put more coins inside me or lose your progress. It's an immediate call to action that is preying on an emotional response that's evoked from your sense of progress playing the game. Oh no, I put so much time into this. I've been here for 20 minutes. I lost all my lives. What do I do? And suddenly you're rocketing your hand at the speed of sound through your pockets trying to find that last nickel, trying to put that back into the machine so you can play again. And that same mentality, I think, has always been present in video games. But like you were saying, I think that the massive economic change and growth that video games have seen over the last decade and a half or so is a cause and effect of it. Because now there's more incentive than ever to incentivize gameplay and to monetize gameplay, even if that's always kind of been the point. 
Yeah. What happens if you are one of the developers for Pac-Man? How are you getting paid? Well, you're getting paid by the company who sells out all these arcade boxes to people, and these arcade boxes are financed by the insane amount of foot traffic you're getting in your arcade buildings. And all those quarters, all those dimes and nickels add up, and that trickles all the way back to you. It was always about the money, except for really, really artsy stuff, like you know, Dwarf Fortress comes to mind, where money or not, Tarn and Zach Adams have been chipping away at the fabric of programmed reality for longer than most of my relatives have been alive. Indeed. That, that kind of highlights the, the difference, though. It's a, it's a passion project as opposed to a financial investment. Or yeah, a financially venture. motivated endeavor, right? It's, I'm going to make this and make it fun because I want people to give me money for it, as opposed to, I'm going to make this because I want to make this. Come what may, what comes into my wallet or leaves. Yep. Although, ultimately, I don't think every, you know, game publisher is just out to get your money. I think there are genuine people who want you to have a good experience playing your games, but it's important to remember that at the end of the day, everything has a cost in one form or another. Yes, because whether or not it's a good thing is totally up to, you know, someone else to decide. Video games themselves are inherently capitalistic, you know? They aren't egalitarian in the sense of, oh, I'm making this game for the people, right? There's no Soviet national anthem going off in some game dev office. It's how fast can we get minimum viable product accepted by Steam and how fast can we start generating revenue? And everything does have a cost, but it makes me wonder how things are going to change in the next 10, 15 years if this is already where we're at, you know? If we have gone from huge monolithic uh, gameplay loops and implementations, like where World of Warcraft, it's World of Warcraft, and you play it like it's designed to that, that's it, right? It's not meant to be extensible or constantly iterated upon or changed. The way that World of Warcraft has grown, it's tried to maintain its essence as much as Blizzard could until it got greedier. And that's it. Whereas now, if you wanted to... Heck, I just a little while ago played a click-and-match game that was linked to a random cryptocurrency that I've never even heard of. And if you played this game and won enough levels, then you got cryptocurrency that you could actually exchange for US dollars. It was an obscenely tiny rate, like you would need thousands of these individual coins to equate to pocket change in US dollars, but it was that idea that this game took an afternoon to implement, and then took maybe another afternoon to implement into the blockchain that it was paying from, and then you're off to the races. Yep. That versus the attractiveness of what it took to create some of these industry greats, like um, any of the Elder Scrolls games, especially the originals, or any of the huge strategy franchises like Command and Conquer, all of these other games took way more time. And I'll bet you money that some of these games that were code jammed in an afternoon have a better revenue potential than these other games. 
just because they go straight for those reward centers in your brain. True. There's definitely that risk reward and feedback loop to always consider. Exactly. So to cut me off from all of my ranting and raving, because this is the Please Send Help Soapbox podcast, and I am soapboxing, and I have been for 40 minutes, we got one more question to go through, and it is, if you could change the style of one game, as in go from a primarily single-player or multiplayer experience to the other, what game would it be, and why slash how would you change it? I think, for me... Man, I would have loved nothing more than to see, one, the day the Dwarf Fortress is actually some semblance of finished, even though it probably never will be. It'll become a legacy project, right? People will work on it long after Tarn and Zack are done with it, uh, at least in my view. But if you could turn that from the single-player monstrosity that it is into some somehow functioning networked simulation of that same kind of world, that same kind of interactivity. Oh, that would be so fun. To be there while the history of your world is playing out, and to have other people have a hand in that documented, accessible, and relevant history would be awesome. Because there's a difference between the history in a game as in, oh yeah, I remember when we all did that raid, that was fun. Or the great plague in, uh... I'm going to mention it again, World of Warcraft, because it was such a big multiplayer game, right? Like, you kind of can't avoid referencing it. Yep. But that glitch from one of the main raids in WoW, where you would have the debuff extend past when you were in the raid instance, and then it spread and a ton of, ton of people in the main alliance city died, right? But then it was patched and people moved on with their lives. With War Fortress, if you were playing multiplayer with it, that history would be permanently ingrained into the game and how everything functioned thereafter. If you managed to kill, you know, King Urist the Third, who was one of the other players visiting dignitaries when you raided their fortress, for whatever reason, suddenly that whole dwarf kingdom is going to come crashing down in the next couple of game years and you had a hand in that and everyone else has to deal with the fallout and that's not something that I think any modern game can actually do reliably definitely a multiplayer dwarf fortress would be something something else entirely I think something of nightmares probably I can't even imagine trying to build a lava channel with multiple people controlling dwarves I might actually have a stroke and die I think you could maybe leave individual players in control of their faction but then have multiple player factions that can then interact I don't know, it would be an interesting idea to pursue Yeah, I think if I were to change a style of a game from single player to multiplayer I think it would have to be Lemmings you know, the classic old school Lemmings what a throwback, Lemmings alright, you've got to tell me about this, how why first off why lemmings but then explain why lemmings so i guess a little bit of background is probably in order for those who may not have played lemmings or even know what i'm talking about at risk of sounding crazy lemmings is an old dos game 
super old, super classic, you know, 256-bit color. And you, you, the player, are put in control of shepherding these little green, floppy-haired, blue overall-wearing lemmings to the exit. And that's the game, is to get from A to B. But the hilarity of the game comes from all the different, and I'm pretty sure out of this world, Zanny contraptions that you have to deal with to get there. Like some level you have, or some levels you have what look like flame sprinklers spinning around, and you have to use uh, power-ups to get your lemmings to build little brick bridges over them, or you know, put down stop lemmings so that they don't walk off the cliff. And all sorts of crazy stuff. Like, and you can, I think that would be super fun to go multiplayer because now you have this big old cooperative environment where you have a common goal with common, you know, with multiple players controlling it. I just think that would be hilarious to see the chaos that ensues because you'd have one guy trying to blow up the stop limits or, you know, take the parachutes away from the, the ones that are falling over the edge or, you know, one person can control the like the floor and they can open up the trapdoor or you know make it turn into a mimic that chases your lemmings off the screen i mean the sky's the limit but for me that kind of crunchy 8-bit art style would be really fun to have in a multiplayer game i think that would be the very epitome uh an escort mission in a game having two sides of however many players trying to either keep these lemmings or keep, just keep their lemmings while disrupting other people's lemmings getting from point A to point B. I think that would basically be the ultimate distillation of an escort-style mission in most other games, and it might actually be fun. I hate escorting crap, but if you're constantly interacting with other people to make it happen, that would probably overshadow the inherent issues of straight line thinking AI trying to, you know, die while you're only told oh yeah while you're only told to keep him alive, right? Yeah. That I mean, sounds a lot of fun actually. We might have to do that for Ludum Dare. Hashtag Exactly. Ludum Dare is coming up. Is it is it Ludum Dar, Ludum Dare? How do you pronounce it? I swear to this day that I've never pronounced it correctly a day in my life. Well, I'm gonna go with the uh Cool 18 pronunciation. Let him dar, or let him dare, depending on how uh, coherent he is. <laughs> Le doom deray. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. Depending on uh, what kind of day it is for Quill, it might be let him dare, whatever. Uh, so, I think that's just about everything that we've got for this podcast. So, as it stands, um, next episodes hopefully will be coming out every other week ish uh they're gonna be about yay long you know about 40 minutes to an hour or so is probably what i'm gonna be shooting for and you'll be seeing links and stuff included to add in your own voice messages or to add in questions or things like that that we can uh read or listen to on air and get some more interaction going so if you want to you know, let me know about anything, then go ahead and leave a comment here on our anchor.fm page. And I'll see about answering them in. So thank you very much for listening. Sprock, it's been a pleasure, and we'll see you all next time. Indeed.